Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. How would you record anything other than live? Could you record not live? I guess you could record not live people. Well, I'm, right? ju I'm just following your lead. You say recording live from FYP <laughs> Studios. So. <laughs> well, here we go. Recording live from FYP Studios, East and West. Transmitting across the internet. This is episode 256 of Registry Matters. How are you people this evening? We are doing marvelous. It is a warm, balmy 55, 56 degrees today. Wow, that's kind of kind of nice. Uh, Larry, do you know that we are no longer an 8-bit podcast? We're no longer a what? An 8-bit podcast. I guess so, but I don't, know, you from I don't know what one is. <laughs> so uh, if you're looking at the screen, so there is one, uh, 0 and 1, 2 and 4, uh, 4 and 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. So we start, if you started at 0... You would get to 255. That would be eight bits. So we are now a nine bit podcast. I really appreciate knowing that. <laughs> You'll be able to sleep night, sleep tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, hey, one other thing before we get going, and this will be super quick. Have you heard of ransomware? I have indeed. Okay. And I, I think you like did, did someone something nearby you did one of your municipalities or libraries or something like that get hit and like they were shut down for months or something the county i live in there they were okay they were ransomed and they told the people that were ransomed they could take their ransom and shove it and they pulled the plug on several vital county operations yikes okay so on my way to lunch today my boss says hey man we've been hacked ransomware encrypted everything like all the spreadsheets that they use to run businesses it's like a massive CF cluster F S H show with my day job. And how about that? That's good stuff. And can you admit that that's funny? Uh, this is definitely not funny. And, uh, but the owner says, um, I guess we'll start over. <laughs> we're, we're still going to make product. We're still going to do internet sales. So everything like we will figure it out. All right, then. So I figured I'd share that with you because I figured you'd think it was funny. I do. All right. Well, make sure that you go find all the likes and subscribe buttons on the YouTube thing. And uh, that helps us grow and build a large community of like-minded you people, people. Uh, so do me a favor there, sir. Would you be so very kind? And would you tell me what we're doing tonight? We've got so much to do. I think we should get right to it. We're going to be talking about yeah, no kidding. Uh, a scam operation in Georgia. We're going to be talk, taking some questions, at least two, maybe three. And we have some clips to play of your favorite people on Earth. And I'm just looking forward to going through this. It's going to be, what do you call it? You have Fantabulous or something like that? Yeah, fantabulous. That sounds good. We can use we can use made-up words like that. Fantabulous. All right. Well, then uh, I will turn off the screen rotator thing, and I will get ready to play uh, clip one. Are you ready for clip one? Clip one, let's see. Yes, uh, this is uh, uh, Senator Graham, right? Yes, this will be uh, M Mr. Lindsey Graham uh, interviewing one of uh, some new judge or something like that. Yes, this, the, this is for a nominee by the president to serve on, as a United States District Judge in the Southern District of California. Now, we've played clips of Senator Graham before when he was attacking the U.S. Supreme Court appointment of Kadanji Brown Jackson along with many others, like Senator Hawley. And we're going to play this just to let you know where he is politically on issues that are important to us. It's your choice if you keep voting for him in South Carolina. That's the only place where he, people can vote for him unless he runs for something else. But listen to what he's saying and decide if he's on our side or not. All right. I hope this is the right button. Okay, what was the, in your paper, you suggested that limiting residency requirements of sex offenders, certain statutes, 
can't live near schools and other things. You, you didn't agree with that, is that correct? Thank you again for the question, Senator. I did co-author that position paper in which a group of us advocated, asked the legislature to take a look at several proposals, including residence restrictions. Our fear at that time, along with the fear of our allies in the victim rights community and in law enforcement, was that in some cases, the residence restrictions were actually hindering public safety, which of course was the opposite of what, uh, of the goal. How does it hinder public safety? Um, in some instances, residence restrictions resulted in convicted sex offenders being homeless, which presents a huge challenge to law enforcement. Well, the, the statutes don't deny people the ability to live at all. They're just restrictions around schools and places where children gather. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I think here's a line. Uh, she, difficult as it might be, laws that regulate where sex offenders may not live should be repealed or substantially modified in their of public safety. <clears throat> I still don't understand how that makes you homeless. Hey, Larry, how can, how is that such a hard thing to understand that if you can't find a place to live, that you may end up to be homeless out of that? Well, his point is that in his mind, he doesn't know the breadth, or at least he's pretending not to know. We have to give him the benefit of the doubt. He may not know the breadth of the restrictions, that there's so many circles around so many things. In his mind, the circle is just around a schoolhouse, and you've got all this territory you can live in other than right next to the school. Of course, he, he's neglecting the fact that many people did not offend against minors and all that stuff. But as a United States senator, you should have competent staff that could brief you on this thoroughly whereby you would understand this. This is a continuation of Senator Graham's grandstanding when it comes to this issue because he believes he's where the people are, particularly in, in terms of the people of South Carolina, but I'd say the people across the country are, are largely aligned with him in terms of that issue. But now here you have an appointment being made for a judge who has dared to write about the efficacy of residency restrictions, and now it's being used against her, and she will probably be confirmed anyway because the Democrat Party has the majority in the United States Senate, and they no longer need a supermajority, they just need a simple majority. So she'll likely be confirmed. But if this is the type of judge you want, you might think really hard about voting for people like Senator Graham. Now we have a second clip coming that's even more telling of where Senator Graham is. That a legislative body saying sex, registered sex offenders, are you okay with registering sex offenders? Pardon me? Are you okay with a registry for sex offenders so the public knows what this person did? Sex offender registration is the law, Senator. Are you okay with that? Whether or not I am or not as a well, no, it is. It's really important to me because uh, the point I'm trying to make here is the argument that the laws restricting where a registered sex offender can live leads to homelessness makes zero sense to me. Thank you. She's completely dumbfounded at the end that he doesn't understand how that could lead to homelessness. <laughs> so, well, I'm dumbfounded how our people can continue to vote for people like this when they, if they pay the least bit of attention and listen to what they're saying and take them seriously at what they're saying. He's telling you right now, he, among other clips we've played, has no forgiveness for people who have done any type of sexual transgression. The last series we played was related to the porn sentencing. And he said they deserve to be in prison for a very long time. And if you want the reform, you say you do, and I trust you that you do, you're voting for the wrong person. Can't argue with you there, man. Not at all. Uh, shall we m move along? We have a ton to cover, so I, we, we need to keep moving along. So, yes, we've got another clip coming up from Justice Scalia. The point of this is to put it in perspective of the last few episodes, particularly the one about Missouri and the, the Supreme Court. 
we've played Scalia so many times, not recently, it's been months since we've played anything that I recollect, but he is the architect of textual interpretation. And a lot of our people believe that they want textual interpretation. This very short clip tells you how he views textual interpretation and what his job is and what his role is as a judge. So let's roll this 57 second clip. You really can't judge judges unless you know the materials that they're working with. You can't say, oh, this is a good decision and this was a good court simply because you like the result. It seems to you that the person who deserved to win won. That's not the business judges are in. We don't sit here to, to make the law, to decide who ought to win. We decide who wins under the law that the people have adopted. And very often, if you're a good judge, you don't really like the result you're, re you're, you're reaching. You would rather that the other side had won. It seems to you a foolish law. But in this job, it's garbage in, garbage out. If it's a foolish law, you are bound by oath to produce a foolish result because it's not your job to decide what is foolish and what isn't. It's the job of the people across the street. Now, the people in context he's talking about, since he was the uh, an associate justice on the United States Supreme Court, he's referring to the other side of the Capitol Mall where Congress operates. Justice Scalia is telling you in his brand of judicial philosophy, he doesn't decide the way things ought to be. He decides what Larry says the way things are. You've got a law in Missouri. The law was clear to the majority of that Supreme Court with only one dissent that they intended for people to be registered for life in certain circumstances, and they were not going to second-guess the will of the people. And if you want judges who look at purpose of law, you're going to have to lean towards a different type of judge than Scalia. Just want you to know that. If you think that he's your savior, he isn't. He is your savior, savior on a couple of things, particularly the confrontation clause. He is, had, was marvelous on the confrontation clause. He looked at it and said, well, it says that your accuser shall come into court and they shall be subject to cross-examination. That's what it means. And some of the liberals were saying, no, we can't have that kind of confrontation. It re-victimizes the victim. He was right about that. But folks, he was wrong more than he was right. So when I look at a judge, when I look at their judicial philosophy, he, his philosophy yielded the wrong result more often than it did the correct result. But when it yields a correct result, I'm all for that textualism. If it wins my case, I love it. I like the way that he presents things, though, that if if we want laws to be clear and specific, then we need to go make sure that they are clear and specific. And if they're vague, it's our fault and we get what we paid for, so to speak. Buyer beware. He's correct about that. Yeah. But that, I mean, I that, that that encourages me in this, you know, in this framework. But even in anything, if you want a roundabout at this dangerous intersection, something, whatever, that's all part of the political process that we get to pick and choose and form how our government is situated. Well, but it overlooks the human condition. Our period of legislation here in New Mexico just ended on Thursday. We have well over a thousand bills pending, not counting memorials, resolutions, and things of that nature that have to also be debated and discussed. We have a 60-day session. Now, I know you're a mathematical genius. Tell me how much attention can 1,000 pieces of <laughs> legislation be given in 60 days with weekends mostly not used for legislative purposes? Uh, it sounds like about eight seconds. Therefore, stuff that could be more precisely drafted with a lot more give and take and thinking about the unintended consequences in longer sessions or maybe a year-round session, you could get more into the weeds. But as legislating goes, we're in a hurry-up mode almost from day one. And as the legislature, legislature moves toward to the latter half of the session, 
we're in panic mode trying to see what we can get done. And you just don't have enough time to think of all this stuff. Exactly what happened in Missouri, no one thought about it, I'm sure. It was like there was nobody there that stepped to what that language, what type of result it could yield. And they don't connect the dots that they give the attorney general unlimited resources. Whatever the AG says they need, the citizens are more than willing to give it to them. And then they express shock when the AG files an appeal on everything, challenges everything. They say, well, can't they use a little bit of discretion? Well, no, they can't because you've given them the resources so they don't have to make value judgments on what they challenge. Therefore, they can be everywhere, challenging everything. Do me a favor and set this next one up. I'll do it with not a lot of tact. Well, this is primarily for sympathy, this this clip from a television. I think it's a TV station in Alabama, but a media source in Alabama of a inmate who died from exposure in a modern jail. I'm sad for the family. This appears to be a person that had it together at one time. And it's like, I'm just flabbergasted that this happens in this day and age. I think it happened like in January or late or December of 2022 or January 2023. Walker County leaders are not talking about explosive allegations of abuse and neglect inside the county jail. As we first reported last night, a federal lawsuit claims inmate Anthony Mitchell froze to death in the jail. The I-team Cynthia Gould is here with what she learned today in Jasper. Cynthia. Brenda, first from Aaliyah, who is handling this investigation. A spokesperson says due to the sensitive nature of the ongoing investigation, the agency does not have any details to share, but many in Jasper today demanding answers now. These images of Anthony Mitchell came from the family's attorney, taken before a downward spiral of meth addiction and what they call serious medical and psychiatric issues. This photo from January 12th, when Mitchell was arrested after a family member called for a welfare check. The sheriff's office said Mitchell fired a weapon at them. Mitchell's face was spray painted black. His weight, according to relatives, had dropped 100 pounds. Two weeks later, this secretly recorded video by a jail supervisor shows Mitchell appearing lifeless, carried out of jail, headed to Walker Baptist Hospital. There, an ER physician notes Mitchell's internal body temperature was just 72 degrees. The doctor suspects Mitchell died of hypothermia. He froze to death. I still can't figure this out. I like. You said something about maybe they put him in a cooler and I'm thinking it could have been during that cold snap and maybe he's in a jail that doesn't have very good heat and uh, wasn't blanketed enough or maybe even they took them away from him, something like that. That's insanity. It looks like a modern facility. Uh, Jasper, oh, Jasper's well in central Alabama, as I recall, I think I've driven through there a number of times on uh, Highway 78, I believe. But anyway, it's it, it looks like a modern enough facility. And it's your job when you're running a jail. If you have a heat failure, you have to you have to call the National Guard Army. You have to find blankets. You have to provide. Your, remember, these people are locked in a cage. You have oh, yeah. you have to care for them. You have to provide for them, and you have to protect them. And if you can't do that, then you need to let them out of the cage so they can do this for themselves. Seventy-two degrees. That's not a. <laughs> That's not quite done yet, you know? Well, that's room temperature at normal room temperature. Uh, Give or take. For, for the body temperature to be that low, I'm not a medical expert, but it sounds like to me that he was in a freezer. <laughs> I, and if he was super unruly, that's where they would put him? Hey, we need you to chill out for a little while, literally? They would put him in a freezer, really? I mean, that's what, but how would he end up in a freeze? He didn't get there by himself, Larry. But I'm saying as a disciplinary, I've never heard of that. They, they have put people in the hole, but I've never heard of putting people in the freezer. I've, I've heard of putting them in restraint chairs, a number of things, but I've never heard of putting someone in a freezer as a disciplinary measure. But that you've offered that up of him being in some sort of chilling facility. And I'm wondering, how did he get there? Uh, well, 
that was a speculation by them putting him there yeah yeah no i hear you but like how else would he get there the only other place i've got is that without enough climate control like the first place that i was at you mentioned before show about the uh diagnostics place like that's like if you saw the green mile with uh tom hanks like that's the kind of place uh that uh that jail is and it's open air and just bars and not a very good eating system and in the winter time when it gets like the cold snap that that was going on right around christmas where pipes were freezing all over the south like it's cold as shit in those places and you struggle to stay warm i don't know if it's death uh level cold so how else do you get to be 72 degrees i don't know well that facility you're talking about in jackson georgia was built in the 1960s are you telling me they didn't have heat in the 1960s i think it was built in like 68 I'm saying it's not well insulated and yes, they have heat, but still like there are windows that are broken and it is exposed and it is not cool. And when I was there, it got flipping cold on a handful of nights and they're like, wear two jumpsuits, wear seven pairs of socks. Here's an extra blanket that they pass out. And like, I, 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 it's just a miserable experience. And you're saying that this is a, a, a more modern facility. Okay, great. So they have, it's all enclosed and probably AC and heat and all that. Of course, heat. But how else do you get to be 72 degrees? You threw out that they put him in some sort of chilling apparatus. And I, I'll i take that. But he didn't get there by himself. Well, no, they, they put him in there. That's the speculation of the attorney in the lawsuit that, yeah, that, yeah. that they put him they put him in a freezer or certainly a, a cooler. But either one is not acceptable. We don't do that in this okay. country. The Constitution doesn't well, permit us to do that. And if they there won't be any consequences for this. Oh, there'll be consequences. I, I'm afraid that this. Well, I'm not afraid. I'm. I'm hoping that there will be consequences, and I'm hoping that it costs Jasper. Uh, uh, it, it costs the county, whatever that was, Walker County, a lot of money. <sighs> All right. Well, we'll move on from that. Um, so here's a question that was submitted. So this is a question for you, sir. Uh, after the presentation uh, of the Missouri Supreme Court holding that essentially eliminated the registry tier system and the possibility for any PFR to ever succeed in petitioning to be removed from the registry in accordance with the 2018 law, because one provision that referred to SORNA was left in the statute. Larry, that's you, said the only solution was to get the legislature to correct this mistake that flies in the face of the clear intent of the bill to allow PFRs to get off the registry with clean records my question is where does one begin contact the sponsors of the 2018 bill who are no longer in office uh one is an attorney contact current office holders who may not be aware or interested contact defense attorneys who specialize in pfr crime accusations i've emailed a local anti-registry group leader to be sure she knows about this i feel so distressed on behalf of my loved one I can understand why you would feel that way. I don't believe we established that no one can ever get off. I don't think that we established that. What we did establish is that certain people can't get off, and that was not the apparent intent of the 2018 law. Without spending a lot of time on it, that's one of the problems when you have a petition process. The best system to create is to follow the Adam Walsh Act, and you you're doing political pitches when you're trying to do this. So the second part of the question is, where does one begin? Where does one begin? You would not be able to begin with former lawmakers unless, of course, they're serving as lobbyists now, which does happen. Okay. They, If Missouri doesn't have a block of time that they're not allowed to lobby, when they're no longer in office by their own choice or by the constituents' choice or by term limitations, often they return as lobbyists because they're familiar with how the thing operates and they get paid buku bucks to move legislation or to defeat legislation that's not good and they can make a good, healthy living. So it could be that you would contact them, uh, a former legislator. But if you do that, you're going to need some money because they do lobbying for clients who pay them. So organizations that have little money often don't have professional lobbyists. But you've got to build your arguments on this and you've got to provide political cover. And as I always qualify this, look folks, I don't make the rules. 
I simply sit here and tell you what they are, <laughs> but, but I don't make them. You've got to convince them and give them uh, of, of the need for the change and give them the political cover that they need. The political cover they need is that they're not going to be vilified in an election cycle. Well, now, if they're Republicans, they're not going to get vilified on this issue because Republicans are already awarded the benefit of the doubt when it comes to crime and public safety. So they actually won't get vilified, but the Democrat Party will. Now, fortunately for, for this person Missouri, the Democrat Party is really irrelevant in Missouri, so you don't have to worry about them very much. You, you've got to give them cover. So I would start by reaching out with my own lawmaker and figuring out of my senator, my representative, if they are in a position to help. And it would take a very long time to tell you all the considerations, but they might be on a key committee that has jurisdiction over this type of legislation. And I would start by talking to them. But when you go in the front door, the first mistake that all of our advocates make is they go in with contempt and disdain. And you just shot yourself in the foot when you do that. You go in with accommodation and understanding of the position they're in. And you say, look, I understand that this is not going to be a popular issue. You can go out and run on and do civic speeches. But we've got a serious problem here in Missouri. In 2018, a law was passed that was intended to allow people to exit the registry. Now we've discovered by the Supreme Court's interpretation of the law that there was a provision left in the law that was overlooked and that needs to be removed. And our challenge is how do we get that out of the law without you having to take a political risk? When you say those magic words, they have a lot more respect for you. If you can bring yourself to do that, they have far more respect for you. We've got to figure out how to get this out without you taking a political unnecessary risk. And then their ears perk up because they understand, you understand the game that's being played, how the system works. And my first line of attack is I always hang my hat on that on Walsh Act. Anytime a state is doing something that's, that's not required by that on Walsh Act, I say, look, you just point to the federal law and you say that tough federal legislation, our registry complies with that tough federal SORNA requirement. We're all about public safety here in Missouri. But within the, within the Adam Walsh Act, you don't have to have a petition process. It's not required. So therefore, as I've said many times before, you want to get rid of the petition process. That's, that's step number one. That's a long stretch from where you are right now in Missouri, but you want to get rid of the petition process. You want the people to time out. And as a compromise position, you would say, if, if politically, if it's necessary, we would allow the state to file a petition and we would place the burden on the state to show that this person presents an elevated danger to the citizens of our state. And the person who's being petitioned against will be provided pro bono legal services if they're eligible under the Energy Defense Act of Missouri, whatever they, their counterpart would be. And that way, you've shifted the whole game around to where that the system has to file the petition and they have to show that the person presents a danger to the community. And that will fly just fine because the Adam Walsh Act doesn't require that there be a petition process. So then you have to have these people rolling out and just timing off the registry. And the state will eventually be challenged on having enough resources to file petitions against everybody. Now, they'll try. I have no doubt they'll try. But these are the type of arguments you would have to make. And when you start making these arguments, you're going to, the first thing they're going to know of is, are you going to help me build support? Because I hate to break the news to you, with a thousand pieces of legislation pending, they're not going to have a whole lot of time to go out and try to build support for reforming the sexual offense removal process. They're just not. So you're going to have to become an expert in lobbying, crash course in making the, uh, the rounds in the Capitol, and trying to build support for what you what you're want to accomplish. It will probably take you several years. 
For example, I'm wanting to move our registration to the Department of Motor Vehicles. We actually call it the Motor Vehicle Division of the Department of Taxation and Revenue. Since it's a civil regulatory scheme, it does not belong in law enforcement. I've already drafted the bill. I have not been able to build the support in the three plus years since I drafted the bill for it to gain any traction was, was my idea. But So if you have patience, I'm going to spring this bill when I have enough support that I at least can cannot be uh, uh, extinguished before I get out, out the starting blocks. But I've got legislation. It does not belong with law enforcement. It's a civil regulatory scheme. And I'm struggling to do the same thing that I'm recommending that, that she do. She's probably got a full-time job, probably doesn't have time to do this. But that's what right. you're going to have to do. <laughs> you're going to have to, you're going to have to start working with either a, a professional lobbyist or you're going to have to become one yourself. And you're going to have and to. And those are pro bono, right? Professional lobbyists are not pro bono. You're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> Uh, you know, those are uh, like uh, I'm leading you into the question, right? So, yes, those are those are good paying jobs and it requires a fair amount of expertise because the things I just described requires knowledge that the average person doesn't have. They're going to know who to go talk to. Sure. And they're going to have access to those people more than you will as an unknown. Okie dokie. Um, anything else there before we talk about this scam thing? Well, I hope the clip I played gets put into the context of this particular problem. The Scalia clip? Because the people on the political right should be jumping for joy and oozing with enthusiasm about this Missouri Supreme Court ruling because they went exactly by the text. Exactly by the text. This is a class, classic textual interpretation. And the only way you can fix it when you have a court that goes with textual interpretation is through a legislative remedy. There'd be another way to fix it. You could put a more liberal court in power that believes in looking at legislative intent. But that is scorned by the textualist. We don't look at legislative intent. We look at the actual text and we conclude it based on what the words mean in the text. And the words mean, according to the Missouri Supreme Court, exactly what they say. And I assume that a, a cat like Lindsey Graham wouldn't be in favor of this kind of legislation. Uh, I did. These changes. I have not heard anything that would suggest that he would be an enthusiastic supporter of helping people get off the <laughs> registry. I have not heard that in any clip we've played. Now, I know you guys can keep hoping for it. And our people tend to cock their head and they keep voting for people who are working contrary to their interests. And I, you know, I've kind of given up on some of, some of them because I say, well, do you, you do realize they're voting contrary to what you say you're for. And I say, yeah, but Larry, I have to look at the big picture, which is kind of insulting, as if I don't look at the big picture. I also look at the big picture. And the big picture to me is that the people who are more progressive are more in alignment with issues that are important to me and therefore i'm also looking at the bigger picture oftentimes they're the one issue voters they will vote on one issue alone and you've got some very good friends that tell you that they would only vote for a person if they're against abortion and other key issues or prayer in the schools or you name it or same-sex marriage those are not the type of people that are well-rounded individuals if you're going to vote on one issue like that. I look at the totality of all the issues that I deem important in my life, and I vote on those issues, not just one single issue. I don't vote on on the PFR registry alone. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app, Hit the subscribe button and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there too. 
Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. All right. Uh, well, this email came in and it was uh, like I had to scroll on my phone for like 10 minutes because it was a pretty long in-depth description of this uh, shenanigans that's being played uh, out there. Darn it. I don't have a screen for this one. Um, so you'll just have to bear with me on the with that question thing. Um, I'll put that up there. Um, anyway, so we got this uh, email and the writer states, I am a PFR living in Georgia. Recently, I was scammed by someone claiming to be with my county's sheriff's department. They called and alleged that they had mailed me a notice that said I had needed to report to the sheriff's department by a certain date to provide them with my DNA because it was needed to update CODIS. They said that the date to report by had already passed and as an a result as a result a warrant was out for my arrest for failure to maintain the registry requirements and for failure to appear and they listed the georgia code for both does this sound familiar to you people <laughs> yes it does i think we've done an episode or two about scams uh and it does sound familiar to me i've i've actually known a person that this happened to yeah i have a close relationship with one too and but I don't know that we've ever gone into it to this degree other than doing like a public service announcement saying that this is a thing going around. Watch out for it, right? Well, I know I've written about it in the in the newsletter for the Marcel organization that I know I've done. Well, he went on. He went on to say, of course, I was scared out of my mind. It all seemed very real. The callback number they gave me had an extension number and a waiting message music that even sound uh, said my local sheriff's department's name. Holy crap. Now, you have to admit that that was an above average scammer. Like if you call in, thank you for calling the blah, blah, blah county sheriff's office. Please dial one for such and such extension. Like, how are you not going to believe that that's what it is? Uh, I have to admit that that is very good scamming. It was indeed. Uh, He said, my first question to them was, if the notice was sent by mail, was it sent certified receipt or signature required? They claimed that they didn't know. They led me down a long road of very convincing gaslighting, intimidating, and emotional manipulation. They mentioned that I still needed to report to the sheriff's department, at which point I would be arrested and put in the county jail to await trial. Larry, can you admit that that's freaking like poop your pants scary? Oh, I can definitely admit that. Uh, I agree that such a call would be scary for sure. And he said after they hung up and called back several times, and that he was uh, doing something in his pants. <laughs> and he was calling his family and friends and pleading for help. And he said the scammer finally baited him into asking what his options were. Um, he said that they told him uh, he was compliant uh, with the arrest that they, if he, hmm. he said that if he wasn't compliant with the, ah, the way that it's written, he said he was compliant with the arrest that they would allow him to post bail before turning himself into the sheriff's department. Posting bail before turning himself in should have been a warning. How did they justify that? Well, they told him that he could avoid being booked and put into custody of the county jail to await trial if he would post the bail in advance. Uh, so that's that's how they did it. Um. So it even it gets even better. He said they sent me a text from the same number that they had been calling from with a QR code and a very official looking message that said, this is your bonding ticket provided by the Fulton County Sheriff's Department Financial Department. Be sure to print your verified receipt. And I haven't heard God, this is a new way to go about this. I haven't heard of them doing a QR code. I've heard them tell you to go buy these different kinds of prepaid cards and this and that. I've never heard of them sending you some kind of QR code. I've not heard of that either. I don't really know what what is. I mean, I know when I see one, I, I know what it is, but I don't know what it does other than it, that it opens something up for you to, to follow online. But uh, our target had had enough by that point, and he called the Fulton County Sheriff's Department, and they transferred him to the PFR registration unit. And he stated that once he had described the situation to them, that they said that they could not disclose if they had warrants out. But it's important to emphasize that the Sheriff's Department stated that they wouldn't give the heads up to, uh, information that there was a warrant out, they would just come over and arrest him. And 
and that they confirmed that it was in fact a scam. Uh, he said that they seemed to be aware uh, of it happening to several people on the registry, and they warned me that the next step would likely be that they would try to get me to pay them money before showing up to the sheriff's department. So what would happen next? <laughs> well, he said the next time the scammer called called him back, uh, he listened. He said, I listened to what they directed me to do. And sure enough, they wanted me to stay on the phone with them until I got to the secured location so that I could pay them the bond money. I then asked them point blank if I was being scammed. And they said they didn't know what I was talking about and that this was very serious. So I told them in accordance with the U.S. wiretapping laws that I was giving them notice that I was going to start recording this conversation. And they immediately hung up. And when I called the number back, the number was disconnected. Now, that's funny. How did the number get disconnected that fast? I don't, I'm trying to put these things together. Like there, there's so many layers of what's going on in these, these scams, uh, for them to be able to, I mean, I don't know. I, I, that they, I mean, they would already be like logged into whatever interface they're using to, to flip numbers around and then they just turn it off. It's a little bit beyond me. Um, so, but this turns out to be something that's super financially devastating, both financially and emotionally. And he said it, he didn't sleep that night that they had gaslit him and emotionally manipulated him. And, uh, and well, that wasn't, I still, he still wasn't sure if it was a scam or not. The next day you know, he says, I called my local police station and filed a report. And at first they were reluctant to file a report because I did not lose any money in the scam. But upon pressing to request that it be filed, an officer called me and took me down, took down the entire statement and filed a police report. Now, do you think that will actually do any good? Uh, no, I really don't. It's not going to be a high priority for law enforcement to bust scammers, especially those scamming PFRs. But these are tough, according to the conversations I have with law enforcement, these are tough to crack. Oftentimes, they're not even in the United States at the time they're doing them. And they need federal and global intervention, and it's just not going to be a high priority. So I don't expect much to happen. Well, now, let me ask you some more direct questions about how this thing goes down. How do they, depending depending on what number they call this individual at, I don't think it said that they called his cell phone or home phone, and nobody has home phones anymore, and it's pretty hard to, not hard, it's just not, it's not in your face, turn to page 742 of the, of the white pages to find someone's phone number. How do they find your cell phone number? How do they know, I, I, they would have to go target and build these huge databases to know that you're at this, this Fulton County one. They would set up. We're going to only do Fulton County on these days so that we have the system set up to do the recordings of the messages. Like, it feels, Larry, that it's an inside job. I can understand how you would feel that way. I don't know that I would go that far. I mean, it certainly could be. I think it's the product of the technology of free information or low-cost information that's out there. I'm not a genius at all, but I can find phone numbers for people fairly easily. And these scams pay pretty well. I mean, it's a couple thousand, three thousand dollars a whack, I'm told. And if you are successful one out of every, what, 50 times? Yeah, you don't have to have a really high hit rate. You're, you're going to make money. I suspect that they're using a lot of the online access to information and getting phone numbers. And it would be interesting to know if this person has a very common name or somewhat uncommon name. If your name is John Smith or Randy Jones and you live in Fulton County, Georgia, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to pinpoint your phone number through the free resources. But it'd be interesting to know the commonality of the, of the surname because I think it could be an inside job, but I think they're using a lot of free and low-cost information that's out there. Well, okay, let me let me redirect that part of it though not necessarily like the information isn't available but they seem to know the the vernacular and the the way to speak like a law enforcement again i'm not saying that that is specific to any, like you can watch enough youtube videos and see how they actually operate that way if you have military background this might also be something that you can just kind of improvise but they sometimes have radio chatter in the background again it's not hard it's just all of the layers that go along with it that make it seem far more realistic than just getting a phone call from somebody in in another country 
trying to tell you that you have to pay your IRS bill? I'm told it's very compelling. I have not received such a call. I have a friend who was not on the registry, and she got a call saying that there was a warrant for arrest, and she called me, and I told her to ignore it. I said, they won't make a call like that. And uh, that was several years ago, and she hasn't been arrested yet. But uh, the PFRs present a more of a viable target because at my low level of sophistication, I think I could hire someone to give me a list of every PFR in Fulton County. And I think I could go through the right. I think I could go through the list and pair out the uncommon surnames and I could probably come up with phone numbers on them in fairly short order without having any inside information into the Fulton County Sheriff's Department. I think I could do all those things. And I could start calling people. Now could I mimic all the stuff that they're doing with the radio chatter? No, I would need a little bit of resource. I would need some resources for that. But I'm I'm confident you could do it with recordings and you wouldn't yeah. necessarily have to replicate a real live uh, uh, command post. No, I don't. I don't mean it that way. But they have all that stuff sitting there, ready to go, to to create the image of what is happening. Well, they would have to. And for them, him, for this guy to call back, and there's, hey, you're calling the Fulton County Police Department, and all that. Like, that's a lot of legwork in on the front end for them to call somebody that. Uh, to 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 make it a whole believable thing. That's that's all that it comes down to is that they're they're painting a very believable picture and manipulating the crap out of you for a scam. Yes, I feel bad, and he wanted to make sure that we are putting the word out. We have, and we are, and we did. And when you get a phone call, folks, it's a scam. They're not going to let you buy your way out of being arrested. Very good. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I think it was early in February that uh, a podcast came out. It's actually one that I listen to on a regular basis. It's called Intelligence Squared. And one of the people known in our circles is named Dr. Emily Horowitz. And she's a professor. She's a sociology professor. I always like she has a fairly long title, but she uh, focuses on sociology and criminology. And I hope that I have that right. And she did a debate with uh, a He's a constitutional expert, he said, Larry, and his name is Carrie, Carrie Fetterman. And uh, so it's like 50 minutes long. I strongly encourage you to listen to it because, A, it's an incredibly good program, but she debates really well. And I know that you listened to it earlier, Larry. He starts almost like attacking her, saying that you're lying. She just keeps her cool. And I'm really impressed that she's able to do that because I would be like, F you, man, stop telling me I'm a liar. And, and it would trigger me, you know? Yeah, she was very cool. The moderator was very good. Uh, that's that's a very yeah very good program. Um, and so I grabbed a few clips and I wanted to get your feedback on it. And uh, so I, I have the buttons on my little button pusher like all over the place. So hopefully I don't mess any of these up. Um, but so so here so I have them blocked. So it's going to be all of the guy Carrie Fetterman first, and then I have a couple clips from Emily on the backside. So here's the first one, and I'll have a question for you on the other side. Sure. Uh, so to the question, uh, does the registry do more harm than good? Uh, I answer, uh, good. Um, this does not mean that I, uh, uh, there aren't some things about the registry that I, I find uh, difficult uh, to accept. Uh, but my positive argument is that the registry and sex offender laws themselves in general are products of an enormous amount of deliberation between parents, citizens, and legislators. They are not products, for example, of referenda, which tend to oppress so-called outgroups uh, because they lack deliberative principles. Uh, sex offender laws are the products of an intense negotiation between parents of raped, abducted, and uh, murdered children and state legislators. Sorry, I think you may have missed the beginning of that part, but I think you know what he was saying. I do. I heard the podcast. Do you need me to play it again? I heard the podcast. I'm good. Okay. Um, so the, the thing that I wanted to bring to you is he says that there's a, a crap ton of debate, and I don't think there's a lot of debate. I think it's a very one-sided thing. Parents are pissed off. They tell the legislator, the legislator, sure, this is an easy win. I get to say I'm tough on crime. I don't think there's a lot of debate. And this is the lock them up and throw them away the key because somebody did something. Therefore, registry. Thoughts? I agree with you. There's very little debate, has been very little debate on these registry laws. It's considered uh, politically suicidal if you don't vote to support them. There's just intense fear, very little debate. 
Now we've been able to change that in my state through the years where there's a lot more debate and we've had some success in getting some modest changes done to the registry, but very, very little debate. Now I agree that it's part of the democratic process. If there were opposition to the registry, it's the democratic process would yield a modification. There's very little opposition to the registry. The registry opposition primarily comes from the registrants and their families and a few liberal do-good advocates. But by and large, the registration is uh, opposition to registration is very minimal. All right, then clip number two, pretty short one. These laws are enormously democratic, and they are the enormous product of deliberation. I, again, like okay, democratic in the sense that there is they they went through the legislative process to make a bill, drafted, and then went before the governor or the president to be signed, but. Like they, I just, I, we're, we're, our side is woefully missing from the democratic process. That is correct. Our side has minimal presence. In some instances, you might have the Defense Lawyers Association of the state. Sometimes the public defenders uh, show up and express some, some modest opposition. But the registrant community, for some reason, they don't show up. They don't hire lobbyists. They're not lobbyists themselves. They don't show up like the gun people do. The gun people can fill our capital to beyond its capacity and other issues as well. I mean, the, the legalization of, of marijuana, they were able to do the same thing. But there's not a lot of discussion because it's one-sided. And the people that do show up are woefully inadequate in terms of what they say they don't use the right phraseology. If I could just get people to utter the words civil regulatory scheme. And the civilly regulated should be a part of the regulation process. Every other civil regulation involves the, the entity or the group that's being regulated. I can't think of something that's regulated that says you're not welcome to participate, but with uh, sexual offender registration. Since we can't utter the words, we can't have that conversation about why are we not at the table? I don't understand that. And then I also added, uh, is it good public policy? The, or the registry? Is the registry itself good public yeah. policy? Of, of course not. It's not good public policy because it's <laughs> unconstitutional. And I'm, I agree with the NRA on one thing, that being the National Rifle Association. If something's unconstitutional, it presents a problem. Now, I'm not saying I'm against all gun control, but we do have a constitution that severely limits what the government can do in terms of gun control. And the registry of having people liberties restricted after they've paid their debt to society and forcing them to be reporting to police, giving up information, sharing their life after they've paid their debt to society is eminently unconstitutional. That is where I will always focus. You will never get me to go down the track that where this discussion went on this podcast because it's not an effective argument. All right, so clip number three. I don't doubt that the registry has some problems, um, but uh, I view the registry as a tool of deterrence, and um, deterrence theory <laughs> is not overly concerned about raw numbers. You know, in other words, if it's deter, I mean, I mean, Emily's argument in some sense. I mean, she makes a claim that uh, uh, sex offending declines with age. Every crime, uh, every crime, literally every crime declines with age. That that starts to hit down on the the recidivism argument. I I we've talked that. Has someone ever been deterred from committing another crime because of the registry? And the answer has got to be yes, someone has. But by bar, by far and large, it obviously doesn't because people keep still keep committing crimes that aren't on the registry. And then in some cases of people that are, they also commit. So it's not deterring everything. You fall into the trap when you go down that, that uh, line of discussion. A regulatory scheme... I don't think it's supposed to be a deterrent per se. I mean, we have the regulatory scheme, for example, when we issue a driver's license. Theoretically, that is somewhat of a deterrent because we want to deter people who don't have the requisite training and abilities and eyesight from being on the road. But when you go down that deterrent, whether it deters or not, 
it probably does deter some. And if it doesn't deter some, it, it may inform uh, people in the community that would have been victimized if the person had been allowed to be secret. That's not my concern. You're allowed to be secret after you pay your debt to society. You don't forfeit that right. So I'm not concerned about the recidivism. We'll lock you up again when, when you recidivate again. But, but when, you, when you have fulfilled your obligations, I'm not going to get, go in that discussion because I, I listened to the, to the podcast very carefully. And I don't think Emily won very many points with his audience because she fell into the trap of arguing about recidivism over and over and over again rather than arguing about the Constitution. Clip number four. This one's my favorite one. Right, because they're precisely because, uh, for one thing, people do need to know that there are sex offenders in their neighborhood. <laughs> and, I, and I wrote a note, Larry, I said, I put this one here, just because of FYP, you know? Yeah, that's a myth about the right to know. Arguably, you might have a right to know while a person's being punished when they're in community supervision because they're technically a product of the court system, the judicial system. So arguably, they might be a, a right to know. But when their punishment has ended, you have no more right to know. Why don't you go and well, you think you have a right to know? Driving is a privilege. Why don't you go down to the board of vehicle office and tell them that you have the right to know, give them a license plate number and ask them who owns that vehicle and tell them you have the right to know and see what they tell you. Oh, and I put this one in here just for you, Larry. Well, all right. So, so technically speaking, the the registry is a civil uh, remedy. It's not. It's not punitive. And Emily's going to say it's punishment. It's not punishment. Um, so, any effects of this civil regulation are purely civil. They have no no relationship to the Eighth Amendment at all. Actually, um, so these are civil regulations. They're they're not punitive, but they are deterrents. Uh, you can have a civil regulation that deters. It's not a. It's not punitive, Larry. Well, I mean, he's quoting from from Smith uh, versus Doe, obviously, or, or some comparable decision. Uh, well, I don't know what to say about that because the first generation of registries were very non-punitive, mostly non-punitive. Uh, most the first generation registries, even in the tough states, were not that. Alabama's registry wasn't that punitive in, in the first iteration they had. Now, Alabama's registry is one of the most punitive, if not the most punitive, in the United States. But clearly, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That was a perfect opportunity for her to say, well, if that's the case, why have so many courts across our country disagreed with you? What about in Michigan? What about in Pennsylvania? What about in Maryland? What about in Ohio? What about in Indiana? She could have gone on and on and on, but she was too fixated on recidivism. <laughs> But you know, that, that would be a point to talk about. And he would have said, well, the Supreme Court, and you'd say, well, the Supreme Court hasn't heard a case on registration for more than 20 years. And clip number six. So post-conviction civil commitment laws are after a, uh, a sex offender commits his crimes and then serves his time in prison. Um, <clears throat> about a year uh, before he's about to be released, um, the attorney general of the state can file uh, for a post-conviction civil commitment of this person, which is purely uh, civil reg and civil and regulatory. It's not punitive. Uh, this person will be uh, brought before a medical board and, and psyche valves will be given. And uh, if there's a judgment for a, uh, a, a civil commitment of this person that he remains dangerous to others uh, in the community, he will be committed. It's not a lifetime commitment. It's on a yearly basis. There's due process all the way up and down. Um, and uh, uh, that's one way to deal with uh, a problem like this. <laughs> and when I told you about this last week, last week or maybe two weeks, you burst out laughing when I told you what he said about um, civil commitment. Yeah, I like that. What he says about uh, due process up and down and uh, they get reviewed every year. Wouldn't that be great if it were true? Every, every year. Yeah. And there's a medical community involved and all this stuff. And it's about treatment. It's about uh, making sure that you're healthy. So, yeah, it's, it's tragic that someone, if he really believes that, and sometimes I give these people benefit of the doubt. I think that they've, they've never bothered to immerse themselves in the facts. It's kind of like, sure. how many years have we been conversing now? It's well over five. Oh, my God. Forever. All of time. We've been conversing for a number of years. 
and people are lacking on facts and they will just spew stuff out because it sounds good but it lacks facts you know my favorite one is unemployment went through the roof yeah. when jimmy carter was president only, only problem is it it didn't <laughs> that's the only problem with that myth that's been repeated so many times and if, if you've heard all this about due process and you never studied the civil commitment process it's standard civil commitment this doesn't commit pfrs there is a fair amount of due process and it's very robust at least i know it is in my state we don't have pfr civil commitment here so i can't tell you what kind of robust process we would have but there's nothing robust about the processes that i hear right 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 all right and then to close it out i, I captured a couple things that she said they also, they're very expensive and they take away from punishing and preventing new sex offenses. There's been revelations in recent years about gluts of sexual assault kits that are not tested in police stations, yet enormous resources are put into this registry, which is not doing anything. In order to prevent sexual abuse, which we've done a good job with decreasing the rates of sexual abuse since the early 90s, was a result of social changes, less tolerance for abuse, awareness, and economic factors, just like with all other sorts of crime. I'm not against punishment. People who commit sexual crimes should be punished and held accountable, but not for the rest of their lives, not publicly, not once they serve their time. Can you talk to me about the unfunded mandate that you've talked about uh, at the county level? Sure. Most of our states shift the primary responsibility for the registry to the counties. And with the exception of one state that I know for sure that does provide some funding, and that's the pure wind-driven state of Maryland, where they do provide, <laughs> where they do provide the county registration, the local law enforcement, some financial resources. It's largely an unfunded mandate. But it's, an unf it's a welcomed unfunded mandate because since law enforcement largely runs for office, particular sheriffs, I think there might even be some places where police chiefs are, are running for office, but certainly sheriffs run for office. It's a welcomed unfunded mandate because it gives them the opportunity to show proactive community involvement in terms of keeping their citizens safe. But it's enormously expensive. And the funny thing is, a lot of what the law enforcement does is not mandated by the law. In some cases, things are mandated, but in many cases, they go beyond what's mandated because it plays well to their constituents. Sheriff Long in Butts County, Georgia, a big example of that. He didn't have to do any of the stuff he did that cost his county uh, uh, well over $500,000, probably closer to a million when you count the county's defense as well. Uh, but it plays very well with the voters and i happen to know a family who lives in butts county and they're just as high on gary long as they've ever been they think that this was crazy litigation we didn't have to do it and i said no we didn't have to we wish he had responded to the letter that we that we had delivered sure but we sure. we had to do it because he didn't respond to the letter we wish he had settled without going to court like his neighboring county did but he didn't you're you're right we didn't he didn't have to do all this we had to do it because we didn't have any other option with his intransigence. So, but yeah, unfunded mandates are, are common with registries because the actual processing of the registrants goes to the county or to the local police and they don't get funded. Other than Maryland, I don't know of another state that provides that funding similar to, to the Maryland model. And then finally, and I know you're going to say nasty things, but I think she's just pretty awesome. The most recent analyses show the whole field finds them low and they decrease over time, that it makes little public safety sense to focus all of our efforts and resources on what is a relatively small population. And she is speaking about recidivism rates there, that because they're low, why should we spend all of this money on something that has a low recidivism rate? Well, I agree with her in terms of the recidivism rate is low. It's just not a winning argument in a public forum. But I mean, it's a valid argument. It's just not a winning argument. So, Gotcha. Uh, so anyway, I in, well, go, 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 please. I was going to say that I was wondering if we could do the uh, well, final question on the next episode, and I, I'll answer it off the air for the for the submitter. Sure. I can, I'm okay with that because we're at 102 or so now. And uh, yeah, that's fine by me. We can close out the show. People are requesting in chat, Larry, that we keep going for a two-hour show. And I'm like, I, I don't personally have it in me for this evening to do that. It's been a very long day for me already. A two-hour show? We used to do two-hour shows. 
I know. I said that. I said that we like it was regularly 90, 90 minutes, an hour and forty five, something like that. I don't know that we ever crossed two. Well, our transcriptionist before we had the present one was so happy when we cut it down because they were so long. <laughs> well, very good. Uh, anything you want to say? Anything closing out before we uh, close this uh, happy party down? I apologize if I've run anyone off this week, but I've tried to do what I've tried to do for five plus years now. I try to give the best information I can as I understand it from my life experience, and I try to be accurate with the information I have. And when people send in corrections, we make those corrections if we've given inaccurate information. So anyway, we're doing the best we can. Well, on that, I uh, repeatedly people say, no, nah, man, don't, don't, don't sugarcoat it. Don't tell me what you think I want to hear. Tell me what I need to know. That's, uh, that's what we're doing here is telling people what they need to know, whether they like it or not. Take it. Well, we would have we would have tens of thousands more subscribers if we were telling them what they wanted to hear. We we could tell them that the Social Security money Joe Biden is putting it in his pocket or something like that, right? Oh, that would certainly drive the listenership. Oh, and did I tell you? So just so you know, Larry, in case you're not informed, Joe Biden is responsible for the cost of eggs going up. Of course he is. I've explained that before. There's this huge. <laughs> There's this huge operation center in the basement of the White House. And every day when he gets up, he goes down to the operation center and he schedules airline cancellations. He schedules baby formula production. He schedules train derailments. He has a, I mean, he just pulls lever after lever after lever. And one of my conservative friends last week, he said, well, what about the, uh, the uh, train wreck in Palestine, Ohio. And I said, what about it? He says, well, why did they let the people go home? I said, well, just tell me what you would have said if the government had not let them go home. What would you be saying about, you'd say that there's insufficient evidence to deprive people of their personal property, and you'd be criticizing them to no end. You hate this president so much that you're going to find fault no matter what they do. But now they're saying that the people should not have been allowed to go home. But can you imagine what the discussion would have been on the O'Reilly? Well, he's not on the air anymore, but on Sean Hannity and on the conservative side, if they had said, by the way, you people can't go home. We got some testing to do. And sorry about that. I was like, hey, folks, you know, Biden didn't cause the train wreck. And the local authorities made the primary decision to, to do the burning of the stuff. I don't think the feds made that decision, as I understand it. But anyway, Biden gets a lot of uh, presidents get credit and blame for things that they don't have anything to do with. And you know, the, the baby formula shortage was a result of factories closing down because of contamination. You know, the, the eggs is because of flu, what they call it, avian flu, and the massive avian the flu. massive eradication of the population of, of, uh, of uh, chickens. Birds. Yeah, we got, it's like... Yep. Like a like a billion birds get eradicated, and some like by anyway. Anyway, find all the show notes and everything you need over at registrymatters.co or FYP Education. Uh, support the podcast at Patreon uh, for as little as a dollar a month. It really helps to keep everybody going and happy, and pay the transcriptionist. And that's at Patreon.com/slash/registrymatters. I got nothing else, sir. If there's anything else that you want to say, then uh, feel free. I look forward to reporting on some legislative news next week from my state. We still got uh, legislation going and new bills put in, and there's a PFR bill that we're going to talk about next week. Ooh, fancy. All right, man, have a great night, and I will see everybody soon. Thank you, everybody in chat. We had a really big crowd tonight, so thanks, everybody, for coming. Talk to you soon, Lane. You've been listening to FYP.